This is Norms Lab, a conversation on the impact of social norms on society and development in Nigeria. This podcast is brought to you by the Nigeria Learning Collaborative for Social Norms, a community of practice which aims to improve social norms programming and research in our country. This community of practice addresses gender and social norms across multiple development sectors, including health and women's economic empowerment, through building sustained expertise and capacity of Nigerian organizations and institutions for good quality programming and strengthened networks. The collaborative is currently hosted by Solina Center for International Development and Research, CEDA, with support from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Norms Lab. In this episode, we'll be discussing how social norms differ in the rural and urban parts of Nigeria, how these norms can impede equitable access to health, socioeconomic resources and impact overall health outcomes. In Nigeria, there are is a clear urban and rural divide in terms of health outcomes. Only 12 to 16% of people living in rural areas have access to healthcare and hence are more likely to experience poor health and have overall lower life expectancy. This disparity often in terms of health outcomes leads to premature death, disability, and reduced quality of life on the lives of people living in rural areas. Today, we'll explore the urban-rural continuum in Nigeria and discuss the challenges of bridging disparities in health in our country. We will talk to experts about social norms that hinder people from seeking healthcare services in rural areas and explore ways to improve access to healthcare services in these communities. Our first speaker on this episode is Dr. Shitu Abdu Agwe. Dr. Shitu is a public health physician with more than 16 years of clinical and public health program implementation experience. He's currently the senior deputy project director on USAID's Breakthrough Action Project in Nigeria on leading integrated social behavior change and family planning interventions. You're welcome. Our second speaker is Dr. Gaurav Mata. Dr. Abdullahi Gaurav Mata is a public health physician who is currently the Kano State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director of Public Health and Disease Control from the Kano State Ministry of Health. Good to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Halima. So we'll delve right straight into the conversation. Dr. Shitu, considering that you've been working in the field for a long time, can you tell us how social norms and customs differ across urban and rural areas in Nigeria. All right. Um, thank you very much, Halima, and for this opportunity to speak about social norms and the urban-rural um, divide. Um, first of all, I'm sure there'll probably be a few new listeners to this podcast, so we should actually talk about what social norms is. And um, I think I'll just define social, social norms as those sometimes written rules, on, sorry, unwritten rules that... Uh, determine how people behave within a given culture or within a given group. And I say sometimes written because um, norms sometimes have roots in culture, um, in tradition, uh, different things. And in those places, you find them actually written. And that guides the behavior of people um, in many um, communities. 
Um, social norms are prevalent, almost invisible, but we, we operate on them on a daily basis. Um, for a, a very good example is just um, the norm around children greeting and deferring to elders. Mm. That is a very common norm in every culture in Nigeria, mm -hmm. but we take it for granted, but we expect children to adhere to that norm. And when we don't say that adherence, we are like, these children are not properly raised. Mm -hmm. you know? So that is a very generic example about how social norms um, can be. Um, now, if we look at social norms again, those norms that are defined by um, who is actually performing or adhering to those norms, whether it's a man or a woman, can now be, for me, termed as gender norms. Mm. Um, social and gender norms, for me, there's, there's, there's a very tight connection between the two because I don't want to be, but many social norms are gendered. Mm -hmm. And some gender norms are actually quite social in the way that they're interpreted in communities. Okay. Um, an example of a gender norm um, would be around men being households, heads of households, and women need to take permission before they uh, go anywhere or do anything in the households. And this is also a very common norm in uh, Nigerian cultures. And it's something that um, is quite prevalent um, across the country in both urban and rural um, areas. Um, social norms may seem in our course, like I said, sometimes we don't even know that they're actually acting, we're actually acting on them, but um, they have effects that can be quite um, deleterious to health outcomes and other outcomes that we look at as uh, development workers. Um, these norms determine access to power, access to resources, decision making about allocation of resources, and in the end, people, some, a certain group gets to be disadvantaged in the process of society adhering to these um, social um, norms. Um, so there are many norms around social relationships and gender that affect health and health behaviors. Um, a very simple one, just writing on that idea of permission. If you're a woman to access or go to go for ANC, for example, when she's pregnant, she needs to get the permission of her husband to go for ANC. And um, even if she sees the need and the benefit for herself, if her husband decides not to give her that permission, she's denied a very important service that will save her life and the life of her unborn child eventually. And there are many examples of this, which I'm sure we'll touch on as we go into the further discussions. Um, as far as the rural urban divide is, is concerned, I would, not, I would not want to say there's a difference in social norms between urban and rural areas, but I would say there's a modification okay. of the norms uh, that we see in, in, these, in these two different uh, locations. Uh, the norms in Nigeria are usually quite uniform in terms of given where they come from in terms of culture and their origins. Mm -hmm. But then the adherence to them differs. Okay, I was modified based on location where people uh, find themselves. And um, the level of observance of these norms as well is determined by where people are located. And there are many factors that influence this, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about those um, in due course. During this Sorry, podcast. just writing on that to explain. So in terms of, for instance, the norm you mentioned as an example, access to healthcare services being reliant on uh, the permission yeah. from the a meal uh, within the household. Yeah. So how does that differ in rural and urban setting, for instance? Um, so let's take the norm that you just called, permission to access or to do something as a woman that needs mm -hmm. to get from her husband. Mm -hmm. Now, the woman in the rural area, maybe an agrarian community, typically less educated, um, not, not, no access to financial resources. Look at that woman and compare to the woman in the urban area, who may have some education or not, may have some trade, even if she's not well-educated, that she's engaging in, 
generically putting it, the woman in the urban area may have more independence than the woman in the, in the rural area. I may not be so dependent on that permission from her, from her husband to access health services that she requires. This does not mean that the norm does not apply in the urban areas, but then the level of adherence and observance is modified by the context in which people find themselves. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chitu, for that context. Dr. Karamata, what do you think are the contributing factors to these disparities and norms in rural and urban settings? Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Halim, I mean, Halima and my co-discussant uh, on this very important issue. And I think, uh, first of all, we need to look at them. I will also be of the opinion that there isn't much difference in terms of the social norms from rural and urban setup because the urban setup emanates from the rural setup. So the norms has been the same. However, there are so many other factors that shape how the norms are being applied across rural and urban settlement. And one of those factors, of course, is the literacy level. People that are well informed tend to change their health-seeking behavior generally. A lady in the urban setup that has gone to school, probably she's even employed, gainfully employed, has a different way of perceiving healthcare system. She may likely have married a husband who has even a better understanding of healthcare system. So, for example, seeking permission to attend ANC wouldn't be an issue for her because she already has a permission to go to work and uh, telling the husband, I have branch on my way to attend ANC or to take my child to immunization wouldn't be be an issue in the family. This is something entirely different in the village setup or in the rural setup where she ought to look for permission. And sometimes one thing that can even affect granting that permission is whether the husband has the transport money to give her or not because she doesn't do much to get money so she relies solely on the income of the husband. So this is one key thing. And the other one that is very, very important of course is the dynamics, the accessibility to the healthcare itself. If the healthcare system is closed closer to the people, you realize they become pro going to the facility. But when it is far away, uh, naturally people feel like, why do you need to go to the hospital? Let me say it's a norm in some rural areas up to today that why should a lady go to a hospital and deliver? It's like a sign of bravery you delivering in your room. Why do you need to go to a facility? This is very uncommon when you come to the rural setup. The norm might be December, it has been modified. The husband can even challenge the caregivers at home or the woman if she decides to deliver at home. He will feel like, why are you trying to put yourself in a risk? So th there are so many factors, but the most important one is the socioeconomic status. Uh, they are more informed. They are more educated. They are more exposed to the reality of life, which is entirely different in the rural setup. And of course, uh, others are the religious and traditional beliefs you realize the perception of religion and tradition get modified in the urban setup, probably because of exposure to more learned ulamas, to more learned people in the tradition and the culture. It tends to be modified. So you see strict adherence to these cultural norms in the rural setup. And this have their negative consequences on our health-seeking behavior generally. So it's interesting, if I hear what both of you are saying is the norms themselves remain the same, but it's the behavior that's modified given this additional context that you have in the urban settings. And then of course, uh, additional benefits of socioeconomic status and easier and diverse access to health also sort of make 
access to healthcare services in general in urban areas even more prevalent. Um, so given this context, uh, I know we've cited some sort of examples um, earlier in your discussion, but Dr. Garamata, can you state major differences in access and intent that stand out between people residing in urban and rural areas, apart from permission uh, to go to for health services? Okay, so when you take access to healthcare services in the real context, you look at it, you need to look at it from three perspectives, uh, geographical access, functional access, and then financial access. Now, in each of these three categories, norms play a role. For example, if you look at geographical access, probably that's why experts in healthcare management believe you need to take healthcare closer to the people. Because somebody, a mother, just uh, not cooking in the house, using that time to cook now to take her sick child to the hospital would be a cause of commotion. It can even cause her, her marriage in the village. This is something that you don't normally see in the urban setup because of the orientation. So uh, the lack of access to the health care closer to these people geographically give chance to the norm to be strictly adhered to in the rural setup. And then when you look at the functional, I mean, functional accessibility, when you don't have uh, a trained healthcare personnel closer to these people, they will go and stick to the norm of utilizing the traditional bond, uh, bus uh, attendants, traditional bond setters, or strictly adhering to the local traditional medications, which are at the detriment of the real modern system. So these are issues. And then when you look at the financial accessibility, you still go back to the socioeconomic status. A lot of them, especially the women in the houses that are at higher risk with their children, are not poorly empowered. They solely rely on the income of the family. And we know in the rural setup, you have a family with a larger size, and yet the income of the head is not even enough to feed the family. So what do you expect? The man to cut out portion of it and give it for her to go and take family planning services? That would be an issue, which is entirely different uh, when you come to the urban setup. So for me, uh, the key drivers to access, which will help in shaping the norms and the beliefs, will be access to the facility healthcare in terms of geography or location, in terms of function that's having capable personnel that can provide the services, and then of course in terms of the financial accessibility. Maybe let me hint a little when we go back to the concept of the inverse care law, where we believe the people that need healthcare the people that have poor health indices are people in the rural areas. But when we look at the distribution of health facilities and personnel, the reverse is the case. You have more than 80% of the people needing care in the rural, but you have 80% of the facilities and the human resource domicile within the urban setup. And these people in the urban setup are more informed to utilize this health care. The people that need it are there. And because it's not close to them, it's not there, they stick to their norms. They still practice traditional medications as a sole way of, or rather one of the best alternatives because it's cheaper and it has been practiced by their forefathers. So these are some, exactly. So these are some of the issues that we can see the negative consequences of the norms on the healthcare accessibility. Thank you for that, Dr. Gauramate. If I hear you correctly, norms are prevalent because the interventions or what we require to help change those norms are not readily available in rural areas. Um, Dr. Shitu, can you share with us how some of these social norms in rural areas specifically um, affect healthcare service, so eliminating the other socioeconomic factors now? Okay. 
Thank you. Um, I think at this point, you need to name some specific norms that we can examine a bit more to see how they affect access to health services. Um, on the USID Breakthrough on Nigeria projects, we had a very extensive formative assessment at the beginning of the intervention in 2017 or 18, thereabouts. And we were able to identify certain norms which we have worked around and integrated into our program and try to address in a way to also bring about the increased utilization of health services and practice of health behaviors. One of those norms, as we've named them, is the norm we call limited mobility and social interactions for women. Uh, this norm revolves around the finding that, you know, traditionally the woman's place is in the house, is in the home. You know, she has limited contacts with people outside the home. Um, it's expected that she doesn't have contact with men who are not within her family. But even with women, that contact is quite limited in rural areas. And this, um, her focus should be on the home, the children, and essentially the husband. That is really her reason for existence mm. in, in, in the rural area. And um, the girls are groomed, even when they're young, to take on this role when they become adults. You can begin to imagine how that limited mobility and interactions limit the exposure opportunities for education, for learning, and other things that women will have um, in, the, in, the, in those rural communities, and how that will impact um, behaviors around health and access to services um, later in life. Um, another norm I would like to name is what we call unequal agency um, in, in decision-making. Again, a very traditional um, setting where it's the man who calls the shots, and every decision in the household, spending, what food to buy, you know, it's the man that has that um, purview to make those decisions. And how those decisions are not really, even the mother-in-law sometimes, many times, is actually has more say in the health of the woman than what the woman has. She doesn't actually have any say in decisions that affect her or affect her, her children. Uh, she has to wait um, for that decision to be made, for her to take any action. And she has to obey whether she's in agreement or she's not in agreement with what decision has been taken. I'm on her behalf. So that's another one. And my third norm I would like to talk about is uh, and it's the expected age gap between spouses, which is also common in many cultures in Nigeria, where the man should be significantly older than the woman that he marries. Um, typically, a young girl of um, maybe 15, 16 will marry a man of 30, or sometimes older, many times older. And the, the culture is different difference to, your, to the man, as a man, difference to your husband, you barely have any say in anything that goes on around you until you, know, you are given that permission to do so. And the fourth one I would like to touch on is um, what my colleague uh, talked about a bit, that, that desire for a large family size. It's a, it's a common norm that we still see very prevalent in our communities. Um, it signifies wealth for in many communities. The more larger your family the more wealth you're seeing, you're, you're seen to have status in your community. Sometimes men want to prove their virility by having many children. Women also want to prove their fertility by having many children. And, you know, it just gives you status in the community and among your peers. Now, if you take these four norms I've listed, um, limited mobility and social interactions, unequal agency in decision-making, expected age gap between spouses, and desire for large family size. Now, think about those norms in the context of, let's take ANC holistic family planning and how it limits the ability of a woman to decide that, oh, I want to space my children for, for two years before I have the next pregnancy. Or I'm tired, I don't want to have any more children. You know, she, that she doesn't have the agency 
the ability to make that, that decision for herself. And she has to be dependent on so many people because at these things are all driven by the norms that surround her existence mm-hmm. as a woman in the community. Um, so these norms, as I've listed them, and there are many others. This is just like a sample of what mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. the key ones we see that really limits women from, women and households really, um, from practicing those priority health behaviors, but also more importantly, accessing services that they need to save their lives and the lives of their, of their children. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Shitu. Um, and I think I just want to write on that, uh, Dr. Gauramata. Earlier, we discussed how the norms are relatively the same, but it's just the behavior that's modified in the rural and urban setting, given these um, additional socioeconomic factors uh, that are interplay. Um, but I want to ask, do you think we have norms that are like in cross-fertilized areas. So like in the semi-rural urban areas, do we see a different uptake in healthcare services where, for instance, uh, the woman might be more literate or more economically empowered in comparison to a rural setting, but unlike in an urban setting where healthcare access is prevalent, they are still limited by those uh, factors? Yeah, thank you very much. I think, uh, uh, like I rightly said earlier, and uh, I will stress that point, I think modification of the norms in the urban setup because of the in change in socioeconomic status actually affects everything. And this entails uh, maybe the healthcare uptake itself. If you look at the indices, barely when you do a comparative analysis of healthcare indices from rural and urban settle, you see a huge disparity. And this is just telling you that uh, the norms, even though remain the same across board, but has been modified to a large extent that the urban setup are able now to change their health-seeking behavior. And by so doing, the indices are better. Let me give a typical example uh, of tech of family planning services. It's still an issue in the rural setup. Uh, we have uh, exhausted commodities in the urban facilities. People are looking for more. But when you go to the rural setup, you still see some redundant commodities unutilized. And when you want to create demand for services, say family planning or uptake, you go to the urban setup, most of the people you'll be discussing with are already informed, they've already made decision. In fact, they are even looking for the services. But when you go to the rural setup, some even are shy to listen to you. Some community actors are even finding it difficult to communicate and advocate for family planning uptake in their own community because they felt by norm and culture is still like a taboo. Why should I use this? And just like my colleague rightly mentioned, the urge for having a larger family size signifying a bigger status in the community is like, why should I space my children? And let me give a practical example. I know of so many families where uh, their husband threatened to end the marriage if his wives now decided to take family planning. Not to end the delivery, but just to spare the children. And this is as a result of a suggestion from clinicians that, look, your life has been in danger all the time you are pregnant. Why can't you space your pregnancy? At a point, some of these spouses are invited for discussion. And from the discussion, you will know it's like they are neither here nor there. And when they go home, they tell them, if you go for it, that's the end of your marriage. You, it doesn't happen in the urban setup. So this is an area that, that is explaining the disparity in the health indices. Another very important area you can look at is the, that, that norms or belief, uh, let me go a bit social now, that healthcare services should be for free. Government must provide healthcare services for free. So why should one. I commit my money? 
to go to the hospital. If you don't bring the healthcare, I would rather continue to use traditional medications. These are areas that are affecting the healthcare uptake or healthcare services uptake and then indirectly affecting our indices. Our local setup, we still maintain that by norm you're supposed to live in a cluster, what we call the extended family. Why should a, maybe a boy growing up because he goes to school, he wants to go and set up his own small house so that he can take care of No, they want a bigger setup. And by so doing, waste management becomes an issue. Decision making becomes an issue. So many other things. These are normal norms that are still being practiced in the, in the rural setup, which is not common now in the urban setup. You hardly see a child getting married and the father said, let me have a portion of my house in the urban setup. It's very uncommon now. But it's a normal thing. It's a norm in the rural area because I need to have my children close to me so that when I grow old, they can help me. In so doing, the the in-laws now become the key stakeholders in decision-making for health-seeking active behavior. So before you know it, the entire system becomes something different when you do a comparative analysis of urban and rural. So, and this is virtually affecting so many things. Let me close by just one example. We just implemented a polio campaign in Kano State, FIPB and OPB campaign, we are trying to interrupt the circulating uh, uh, mutant polio virus type 2. And one call community said, like, they don't want to. Why? Because they didn't see government presence. They have road that needed to be constructed. They don't have water supply. Why should they take the immunization? Remember, this is for their own good. But they are, like, trying to protest that government ought to have prioritized road and other things at the detriment of the health services we are bringing to them. So they feel like if they reject the services, they will hurt the government. So taking the services is like a favor to the government. These are norms in so many places that when you come with any intervention, you must sit down with us and you hear from us what we need. Even if you have seen the problem with them, they still want to choose what intervention you should give to them. This is very uncommon in the urban setup. So this, I, the, you, I can keep mentioning so many of this. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. I think it's interesting. A lot of time when we talk about healthcare-seeking behavior, we always think about the gender norms that prohibit healthcare-seeking uh, behavior. But it's actually interesting to see that there are just so many norms interplay. So many. And I guess, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Dr. Shitu, because of the localization and isolation of rural communities, it allows these norms to sort of, you know, become metamons and norms and affect uh, so many life stages and different uh, development initiatives. Now, I'd like us to shift our focus to solutions. We can clearly see that harmful social norms are detrimental to effects on health outcomes. How can we walk around these challenges, cognizant of the disparities and, you know, the settings that you'd find in rural areas, Dr. Shetu? Thank you once again. Um, changing norms is probably one of the most difficult things anybody can embark on because norms in every community, in many groups, have been there for decades and even gotten to the point where they are, like I said, automatic or even reflex. People don't even realize that we have this programming and there's another way to do things. And it takes a lot of design and effort to really create the critical mass of people you need to shift um, behaviors around a particular um, norm. And um, just given that difficulty, 
you know, any intervention that I want to address social norms needs to be intentional and needs to be long-term because it takes a while, maybe even between generations, to see a shift in certain behaviors that have always existed in a, in a group or community um, for a, a very long time. Um, secondly, we need to be very also intentional about engaging the stakeholders. I like to call them the custodians of some of these norms that's, um, that we're talking about. And when I say custodians, it, it differs. You know, when, when if you take a certain norm, who are those that are the upholders of that? It may be a group, it may be an official person, it may be a certain gender. You don't have to do that sort of background work and know who are the people that uphold um, these norms um, in these communities and this, find a way to ensure that at every level, the people involved are involved in the process of trying to change um, these uh, long-standing um, norms. Very important that every project that wants to change um, social norms conducts a formative assessment. Um, norms differ. I mean, you, even, even within one state, in different communities, there will be different norms around childbirth, around breastfeeding, around delivery. You need to contextualize your identification, design, and interventions. And you can only do that when you understand the context in which you're going to implement. So those formative work are really, really important to define the norms that are driving behaviors um, in, in the communities that we try to intervene um, in. And I also mentioned that um, this issue of critical mass, it is not enough to change norms in a few people when they're surrounded by a sea of many others who are still mm -hmm. adherents of the norm. For you to see that shift over time that you require to see, you need a critical mass of people who are, who are able to shift and change the norm in a given group or in a given location or setting. And it's getting that critical mass across all levels of intervention that I think is a huge challenge um, for norms changing um, um, interventions. Um, with the rural urban divide in particular, you know, when you want to intervene or find solutions for um, social norms, you really need to look at contexts and, you know, really define the levels of adherence to norms, how they are different in rural areas, urban areas, who are the upholders, they may also be different in urban areas and rural areas. Um, what approaches do you want to take to change those norms in urban areas and rural areas? A very good example is in urban areas, peer networks, mass media, and those sorts of channels can give you some leverage. You know, whereas in the rural areas, more direct interfaces with communities, with leaders, will get you more mileage as far as norms are concerned. So you, you need to look at your context and really determine um, how best you want to approach. But you have to, you have to be very specific in your design and your understanding of the context in which you are, you are working. Um, I'll just give the example of um, the, the norm of you know, self-treatment. Um, commonly, that we, you know, um, in the rural areas, you feel ill, there may manganese by your side, small portion you take in my area you go off to your ppmv or your chemist get your treat yourself for malaria without testing you know these are common norms all over in our communities and take that norm alone and look at it from the lens of the rural area and the lens of the urban area your approach will be different because the things that influence those in the urban areas are different from those that influence those in the rural areas and access to what, what they have access to is also different you know, so, so these are some of the broad thinking when you're thinking about finding solutions 
to um, addressing social norms to improve behaviors um, in our communities. Anything to add? I would just write and maybe uh, give uh, maybe some additional uh, uh, information. Uh, one, of course, uh, like he rightly talked about, uh, behavior change taking longer time to effect. And uh, probably uh, it's just for us to look at them from two perspectives. What can you do in the short term? What can you do in the long term? Uh, putting your targets maybe for the short term to improve existing health indices by promoting uptake of services. And some of this includes, uh, of course, proper engagement and providing the right information. I know uh, as a country in Nigeria, Kano as a state and so many other states, there are policies and uh, programs or innovations that are put together in place to be able to change this narrative because it affects every stakeholder in the health system, seeing the, the, the disparity getting wider. Uh, one of them is strengthening or rather establishing community health structures. Where you have community health structures, they have a dedicated work to do in the community. And I know we've been having this for quite some time. Uh, but uh, recent effort is the effort made to, you know, harmonize them and give them a common target. With the recent introduction of the CHIPS program, Community Health Influencers and pro uh, Promoters and Services Program. These are people selected from within the locality and they have a direct UR. One of the key things is changing the negative norms, creating demand for services. What we need is to strengthen these existing structures so that in every community they exist. We realize that, like for example in Kano, the health-seeking behavior in a community where we are implementing CHIPS program versus those non-implemented is slightly different. And the health indices are getting different. So it means it's working. Now, the, uh, the other one, which is nationwide approach, is of course the establishment of the World Development Committees. This is a committee that has key stakeholders, traditional and religious leaders, and focusing mainly on the health system. Some of those norms can be changed directly when you use the traditional religious leaders. They are very strict to them. Once they hear something coming from their imam or from their meungwa or the traditional head, they take it as important and they believe it will not affect them. One thing that makes people uh, difficult to change norms is they felt the norms is like part of their life. So you must give proven evidences that changing it will give them extra benefit and they believe the people closer to them so this is another way of doing it now the long-term way of doing it is of course bringing the necessary infrastructure closer to these people education infrastructure and then coming up with programs that will ensure girl child education and empowerment because uh, the, the major victims are the women and through the women the children once you catch the ladies younger, they get to school, they get empowered, the narratives will change. Most of these indices, when you look at them, are maternal and neonatal or child indices. The adult male are not really uh, an issue when it comes to healthcare system. So these are some of the ways I felt we need to do more. Because if it's a normal thing to utilize traditional institution for your own medication because it's cheaper, and you don't have an alternative that is proven to be effective close to you, you stick to what you have because you are getting results. They are used to it. But once they have a better alternative, they wouldn't mind going 
towards that, especially when there are evidences to show this alternative is better than what they have. That's the only way you can change norm. You don't change norm by force. People don't change norm by force. It's part of their life. And another very important thing is community involvement in everything you will do. For example, you want to do an intervention in a community because there are ad hoc parcels, you end up taking ad hoc from elsewhere, maybe from the urban setup, and bringing them to deliver your intervention in the rural setup. Remember, they have their norms modified already. Mm -hmm. They might not speak at the same level with those people in the community. So this creates barrier, sometimes even rejection. Sometimes they say, because you are westernized, you are coming with something new, we will not take it. But when they see a neighbor's child, coming to speak to them or giving them an intervention. They feel like it's part of us because this is his father's house or something like that. So I think we need to change our approach. But above all, we need to get them educated. It's all about education because that is the determinant of everything we do in life. Thank you. So, I mean, just writing on what you said earlier as well, Dr. Shitu, uh, norm shifting, when you say being targeted specific, you know, it's actually addressing whatever context you find in yourself. And I think what Dr. Karamata is saying, one of those contextual issues is you know the person delivering the message is as important as the message itself yes, that you're sharing absolutely which is quite interesting to hear so i mean we've spoken about general approaches and general solutions um Dr. Shitu, i want to hear from you uh what are some of the specific programs that you have been working on in usaid's breakthrough action uh projects aimed at shifting norms that are particularly aimed at improving uptake of healthcare services so before I answer that question, let me just um, acknowledge Dr. Ferrimata. I think he's a man after a man after my own heart. He's he's an SB social behavior change advocate at the core because everything he's described really is how we approach uh, the work we do in uh, Breakthrough Action Nigeria. And um, you know the point you also made about demonstrating that this new thing is better than what you've always practiced. I use always give the example of making the case for home delivery, the, the norm of home deliveries. Now. Over 80% of home deliveries are, no, are normal. Okay, but the issue is the 5% or thereabouts that will become complications. But just based on evidence available to the woman in the rural area, all the children around me, like most of them are giving birth at home, but they're all doing well. They're all doing well. It's this woman who actually got to the hospital that lost her baby because she had a complication. So hospital is bad for me. So. Again, his point about education, risk perception. Education improves risk perception and risk taking. Even if things happening around you tend to be normal, but you are you're also exposed to risk, and it takes some level of comprehension to get that risk, um, to comprehend that risk and, and act to prevent uh, whatever it is uh, from happening. Um, so in terms of specific interventions, I think there are many ways we approach social norms um, in BA Nigeria. And we've been very intentional really about putting the man and woman at the center of our interventions and highlighting the roles that both the man and woman play, play in maternal newborn child health nutrition and all those uh, areas that we work in uh, in the communities. Um, one area that I'll talk about today is um, something that resulted from the formative assessment we conducted at the beginning of our projects, um, where we learned and confirmed that this issue of lack of agency that women have in deciding, 
taking action around their health, the health of their children, it remains a big issue. And the big question for us was how do we intervene in this situation? How do we empower women to act, to have the knowledge, to have the resources, to actually do something by themselves without having to wait for external help to get anything done? So we adapted a non-going intervention that um, a, pre a previous project did um, in several states. Um, they used to call it the Talafim Mata Masudabara. Uh, we gave it the English name Women Empowerment Group, uh, but also adapted that. This is a group where um, women come together in a safe space to learn about health behaviors, support themselves through practicing those behaviors, participating in micro um, savings and loans programs, credit here and there to start a small business. And, um, you know, they have buckets of funds. There's a business fund where they um, revolve among themselves um, with loans that you start their business. There's the emergency fund where they can borrow from if they have an emergency to go to the hospital. And there are social funds that um, they also use um, to do other things for themselves as a group. Um, these groups have weekly meetings where they contribute bigger amounts, really. This is, this is rural areas. So women start with as small as five naira, 15 naira, 100 naira, you know. And, you know, but then after a while, you're able to draw some money, start a small business. You're making soap, you're making kulikuli, you're making whatever. You have some little capital or profit that you can also use to do other things in the household. You know, and um, the, the women also support themselves because we, we were able to modify the approach in a way that we integrated the practice of these practical behaviors into the weekly meetings. So you have, at every meeting, you go through a session that reminds you and you engage yourselves around the practice of these behaviors. And um, part of the rules of these groups is that women need to practice these behaviors. So inevitably, they are encouraging each other. Encouraging each other. Mm -hmm. So And all this um, comes together to really bring the woman to a, to a new level. Um, we've seen, with this intervention, uh, we've seen really improved confidence on health matters because their knowledge, knowledge has improved um, in many of these women. Um, they're able to contribute to household decision-making and household income because now they can buy a few things. They don't have to always depend on their husbands um, to get these things done. Um, they have resources for themselves. We see their self-esteem has improved. They're glowing compared to where they, when they came to the groups. Um, and more importantly, we see the improvements in health in these women. Many of them are now practicing exclusive breastfeeding. Many of them are now encouraging their pairs and themselves to go to ANC. Um, nutrition has improved among this, among this group of women. And by extension, this flows into the family and the community as well, um, benefits as a whole from that um, improvement in agency that these women have. Um, we have not done this without the men in the communities because inevitably you have to carry every stakeholder along. Like I said, when you want, when you want to change norms, you have to engage everybody. You know, but we've engaged men in every community and said, this is what we want to do. And we've always gotten support from men in these communities. And the men have always been excited as well to see how this has worked very well. Um, so this, this is just one area I want to highlight about how we have used this to really mitigate the effects of limited mobility and lack of agency for women. Just taking them you know, to a new level, knowing what's important and being able to act on it because they're empowered to actually act on those things.
Thank you so much. I hope you'll be discussing more about this program and some of the other findings from your formative assessment at the upcoming Social Norms Conference in three weeks now. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a couple of presentations and this will definitely feature prominently among our presentations. You know, yeah. I always find it interesting when you talk about social norms or gender norms, mm. it always seems like these norms tend to portray women as not being able to. Uh, but then when you actually talk up, see how we operate in our communities, it's outstanding the amount of influence a woman has because you know she might not be directly influencing her husband mm. but she has a lot of say in terms of her children yeah. in terms of the people around mm. her like we always tend to take for granted so I'm, I'm glad to see that you know having a collective of women is even yeah. you know translating into that big change within a wider space community. Dr. Garamata, are there some of these programs that you would also be discussing at Social Norms, uh, at the upcoming Social Norms conference that you want to share with us? Well, I think maybe some of the probably existing innovations like, let me say, in Kano, which in some states equally uh, they are going on. You know, like I said, some of them aim at reversing the narratives by improving the health indices. For example, the... We have a system in Kano, I'm sure you're aware of it, the Kano Emerald Council Committee on Health, which is a traditional health-related structure that uh, comes from the top down to the community level. That has been very helpful in changing some of these norms because you communicate through them and behavior change is faster using this existing structure. And then uh, another very important innovations that are in place to improve uptake of services. For example, if you look at the, 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 the introduction of incentives to improve uptake or ANC attendance and facility delivery, it's another way that we feel women will now see are even, they are even encouraging us by giving us something to come to ANC and deliver in the facility. That sends signal to them that this is something very important. If government is even giving out something, I know it's working in some setup, but even though my concern with it is the issue of dependency, that without it now, I will not come. But as it is now in the short term, changing the narrative is through this type of packages. We have a project in Kano called the New Incentive. This is even strictly for immunization uptake. We're trying to target the zero dose LGS and see how do we incentivize because a, 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 a survey was conducted trying to do a bottleneck assessment of what is the reality. And a lot of findings uh, suggested that uh, most of the responders do not even have uh, transport money to go to the facility for their children to get immunized. And the new incentive now designed a program called New Incentive, which they are implementing in Kano. Therefore, every child coming to take whatever antigen you are taking, you have uh, money given to you to cover for your transportation. These are not long-term solutions, but they can help in changing the narratives in the short term. There are so many of such things. The Vulnerable Insurance Program, aim at covering those who truly do not have the capacity to be able to pay for health care services. These are issues that are ongoing. So, But all these are in the short term because with them you may not be able to achieve the long-term behavior change, but at least it will help in changing the narratives. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Shitu. Thank you, Dr. Gauramata, for this um, insightful discussion. And um, I think I look forward to more of such discussions at the upcoming Social Norms Conference. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. 
If you're interested in learning more about social norms and their impact on health, education, and gender equality in Nigeria, or perhaps you want to learn more about um, the interventions using community champions or the concept of women collectives uh, for changing behavior change, you're invited to the first ever Social Norms Conference in Nigeria with the theme, Norms Shifting, Cutting Edge Innovations for Health, Education, and Gender Equality. The conference will feature speakers from a variety of backgrounds and fields, including academicians, practitioners, and policymakers. The conference will be held on September 25th and 26th at the Sheikh Musa Er Adua Center in Abuja. That is the September 25th and 26th at Sheikh Musa Er Adua Center. See you there. Thanks for sticking around. If you liked this episode of Noms Lab, spread the word by sharing it with your friends on social media. Tag us at NLC underscore social norms. Don't miss out on our next episode. Subscribe to our channel and turn on the notification button. Our keyword at the NLC is collaboration. Would you like to join our community of practice? Email us at info at nigerialearningcollaborative.com. Tune in again next month to listen to another phenomenal conversation on Noms Lab.